0: I'm going to record my talk uh, today, just in case I say anything profound. I'd like to have proof, you know, that that I said something profound. So why don't we start with a question, uh, a question about Buddhism. Uh, Do Buddhists believe in God? Hands up, yes. Okay. Uh, Do Buddhists not believe in God? Hands up, please. Okay. Okay, good. Well, you're both right. So the the idea is the Buddha believed in gods, but he, he was in India, so you know there's not just one god, there is a hierarchy of gods. You had the really important ones and the not so important ones, and you had a lot of them. And Buddhism, as you know, after studying a little bit in your books, is about suffering and the end of suffering. So, um, as a Buddhist, we do not not blame God for our suffering. As a Buddhist, we do not ask God to end our suffering. So, I think Buddhism is really unique because it's not atheistic, it's not theistic, it's non-theistic. It's not that we don't believe in God, it's not that we do believe in God, it is we don't know... But whatever God might be is not going to help end my suffering. So as long as we've had God, humans have suffered. Now can anybody give me a definition for suffering? This is a sort of a tough one because we use the word a lot in Buddhism. But when it comes to, well, this is what suffering is, oftentimes everybody becomes silent, just like now. So would anybody like to make a guess? Yeah, suffering is. Pain. I'm sorry. Like pain. Like pain. Like is that sorry, announcement? Like, yeah. hmm? Okay, I'm gonna sit down while the announcements are. Good morning, King. Wow. It's home <laughs> There's a rally Thursday. I'll sit over morning. here. <laughs> make sure you come out to the dance Friday. Tickets are on sale in the student. <laughs> store. That's all I have for you today. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> Man, that's scary. Okay, that's, that's sort of right, except the word pain. Uh, pain and suffering are two different things, So, which is interesting, isn't it? So suffering, suffering. The best definition I ever heard was from a seventh grader. In Glendale, California, I was giving a talk in their history class about Buddhism, and I asked the same question about suffering, and she raised her hand. Her name was Esmeralda. And she said, I know what suffering is. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. Suffering happens when you want things to be different than they are. Suffering happens when you want the bad to get over faster and the good to stay longer. And the root of the suffering is the desire. It's the attachment or aversion to a mind state, or to a circumstance that you find yourself in. So Buddhism will not end your pain. If you have a body, if you have a mind, you're going to have pain. But what Buddhism does is it changes your relationship to pain. It changes your relationship to the world around you. You start to experience the world in a different way. Okay, so would that be considered a religion? Anybody think Buddhism is a religion? Yeah, Yeah, some people do. Okay, philosophy, Buddhism philosophy. Yeah, okay, Buddhism lifestyle. Buddhism lifestyle, yeah. Okay, Buddhism is all those things. Like a lot of people, it's their religion. And they were brought up as Buddhists. Maybe not in America so much, but in Asia, absolutely. You know, they go to the temple. On special holidays, they offer incense to the Buddha. We might think of it as being Christian and going to church on Easter. But you may only go to church two or three times a year. And a lot of Buddhists only go to temple two or three times a year. And then you've got the other Buddhists who are more devout and they go more often. And you have the other Christians and they're more devout and they go more often. But most Buddhists and most Christians aren't theologians. They don't understand all the concepts that go in to making it a religion. So when you become a monk, like I did, you do a lot of studying and a lot of practicing. So you practice meditation. What do you think meditation does? Anybody have an idea? Meditation, yes. Gives you peace of mind. I'm sorry? Sorry. <laughs> gives you peace of mind. It gives you peace of mind. It can, absolutely. But I think the key word in that sentence was mind. Meditation changes your Mind. It changes your mind. So you're able to look at things and experience things in a different way because you meditate. And instead of prayer, petitioning a divine being to intercede in your life to make it better, a Buddhist would sit quietly and reflect on all the different mind states and thoughts going through their head and come to the conclusion that maybe those thoughts aren't really who I am. Maybe I just think because I have a mind and body and a human birth. And my thought process is really complicated and really unique compared to a cat or a dog or a bird. And we have this wonderful idea of past and future. And we can project into the future how we'd like things to be. And we can go back in the past and look at things we could have done better And feel sad we didn't do better and feel happy that all these things will be happening in the future. And generally speaking, those things that we think will be happening might, but in a different way than we think. And all those past problems and indiscretions, those just sort of fade away with enough time. I had a really interesting experience two weeks ago. I went to my 50th high school reunion. Yeah, 50 years. So, when last time I saw these people, they were teenagers, and now they're all senior citizens. And you know what? They're really hard to recognize. Life isn't necessarily good to body and mind. You know, some people had like dementia and Alzheimer's, some people didn't walk very well because they'd had a physical life and their body just sort of broke down after a while. Some people had a lot of wrinkles on their face. Some people didn't have many wrinkles on their face. A lot of them were grandparents. They had children and grandchildren. And I'm going, whoa, man, that is so weird. Because I don't have either, because monks don't get married. And, and so I looked at them, and I, I thought to myself, my life is so unique compared to them, because they did something they were supposed to do. And you know what you're supposed to do? As a human living in America, the first thing you're supposed to do is get an education. You're involved in that right now. Very good. The next thing you need to do is you need to have a relationship with someone. Okay? And you're working on how to do that right now as well. So education and relationship. Then your next job is to get married. And then your next job is to have some kids. And then your next job is to encourage your kids to have kids also. And then your next job is to retire and think about all the great things you did in your life and the living legacy that you left behind. And what is the living legacy that you left behind? It's your kids. They will determine how people think about you when you're gone. And that's pretty much it. And you think, wow, you know, isn't there more to life than that? That sounds just like news weather in sports, you know, something you see every day. For most people, that's it. They're happy that that happened. They congratulate themselves and the family they were able to have and raise. But then there are other people who decide maybe they want just a little bit more, you know, just to maybe investigate other things that aren't traditional, maybe become a scientist and discover something brand new that nobody's ever discovered before. Maybe be a writer or a poet or a musician and have a, a lifestyle of art and creation. You know, so there's so many things we could do with our life if we have the courage to take the, the, at the fork in the road, go to the other side, the creative side. The side that says, hey, do you want to try this out? you want to see what this is like? Do you think you can do it? Do you think he can be a musician? You know? You may not make a lot of money, but you're going to have a lifestyle that will give you satisfaction and fulfillment. So I'm not encouraging you not to have children and not to have all the other things you're supposed to have, but maybe there's just something out there that calls you and say, hey, I got your name. Hey, give this a try. I think you might like it. See what people think. See what you think. Now, when I became a Buddhist monk, it wasn't, you know, the best decision most people thought I had made. My father, he was a Lutheran, he knew I was going to hell. And I said, well, Dad, you know, somebody's got to go to hell. And then my mom was just happy because I was happy. Aren't moms wonderful that way, you know? Dad, sometimes a little critical, but mom, yeah, whatever you want to do, if it makes you happy, and I don't have to support you, go for it. And then my brothers and sisters, they don't care one way or the other. You know, that's how brothers and sisters are sometimes, you know. And, and then my friends, I lost a lot of friends along the way, because they had known me before it became ordained, and after it became ordained, my lifestyle changed a lot, and so I lost those friends, but I got new ones. There are other people out there who became my friend because of what I was doing now, not what I used to do. And so, one of the things about the 50-year reunion is how I used to be and how I am now. And everybody wanted to know what's it like to be a monk. Well, it's pretty boring most of the time. We don't do a whole lot of things. How do you live? They say. How did you live as a monk? You know, do you do you have a job? Do you pay taxes? Do you get Social Security now, Medicare? What what did you do? So I was really lucky because the model at the meditation center where I live is a Western American model, which means we don't just live on donations, though we enjoy them and they help us. But I got a room to live in. I got health insurance, which was really cool. And I got a stipend. I got a little money each month. That allowed me to go out and eat and buy socks and underwear and, and have, you know, buy gas for my car. I didn't have enough money in the beginning to have a car, so I had a motorcycle. So, for seven years, motorcycle was my only form of transportation, which was sort of cool. People like that idea of the monk coming up on the motorcycle, you know. They, and then they would say, Do you wear leather jackets? I said, Yeah. I, oh, yeah. I said, The robes protect me in one way, and the leather jacket protects me in another way. Then they said, well, do you pay taxes? And I said, yeah, you know, at our meditation center, we got a W-9 form at the end of the year. We were all considered independent contractors. And then I had to pay self-employment tax. Self-employment tax is Social Security. And when you get a job, most of the time, the employer pays half and you pay half. But at our center, the employer didn't pay half, so we had to pay the whole thing. Now, I had an option of not paying Social Security. I could have opted out because I was a clergy. But I tell you what, now that I'm old, I'm really glad that I paid Social Security because now I get this check every month from our government saying thank you for working all those years and paying Social Security. Then I get Medicare so I don't have to die if I get sick. (laughs) I can go to the hospital. And the government pays for that, too. So I'm glad that I paid all those taxes all those years because now I can benefit from them. But I still get donations. People are really nice, and they still donate to me. So I go to a church. I give a talk at a church. They give me a check. Thank you very much. And then sometimes I'll do this, and sometimes I'll do that, and I'll get another check, or I get some cash, and I say, thank you very much. I did a wedding a couple of weeks ago. It was a really nice wedding. And um, they gave me some money for doing the wedding. They said, you want to stay? You want to stay for dinner? We're going to have a wonderful dinner. I said, no, I don't want to stay for dinner. Because when the monk stays for dinner, nobody has any fun. So I'm just going to go. <laughs> but could I get one of those nice dinners to go? And they said, sure, we'll give you a box dinner. So I got to eat it anyway. So what do I do with all my money? Well, you know... Just to live in L.A., I don't pay rent, but I have a car. Women in San Diego at a Chinese Buddhist monastery came together with some donations and they got me a car. How about that, huh? Yes. Now, the problem with a free car is registration, insurance. Nothing's ever free. It just starts free. And then it just costs you a whole lot of money to keep it going. New tires, new struts, you know, a few thousand dollars later. You still got the car, the free car, but you spend a couple thousand dollars. Did you that know happen on Oprah? She gave everyone the Onyx BMWs. I think so, <laughs> because, like, something like, like that. that. More than half had to give the BMWs back because they couldn't afford the tax and license. And yeah, then, no, I know. It's a fortune. <laughs> it's a fortune. Oprah. So be aware of free yeah, stuff when people will give you free bad. stuff. So I take care of homeless cats. We have, right now we have eight homeless cats in the backyard of our meditation center. And it costs about $100 a month to feed them. And I'm on Facebook. I have a lot of Facebook friends. And sometimes they'll give me money for the cats. Not for me, but for the cats. And I say, thank you very much. The cats eat twice a day. In the morning, I give them a little wet food. In the evening, a little wet food. And all during the day, they have dry food. And you know what is so cool about doing that? I don't know if you have a pet or if you feed your pets every day, but you can tell yourself if you do, at least today I'm going to do one good thing. I'm going to feed my pets. Yeah, so it's cool. Now, sometimes at night there's a party in the backyard because there are other cats that know there's free food in the backyard. So all of a sudden we go from eight cats to maybe 15. And you can hear them dancing and singing and just having the best time. Until the sun comes up and then they all go home. It's really weird. So our meditation center was founded in 1970 by a Vietnamese monk who came over from Vietnam to teach a class at UCLA. And some of his students said, why don't you start a meditation center? Because we'd like to learn how to meditate and find out about Buddhism. So he said, okay, I will. Now... The center where I live is called the International Buddhist Meditation Center. And this is for people who only speak English. Because there are a lot of people who don't know more than English and they want to learn about Buddhism. And if you go to an ethnic temple, like a Chinese temple or a traditional Vietnamese temple, they speak Chinese and Vietnamese. They don't speak English very often. And so our center, we only speak English. And because most of us were born here... We have concepts and stories that people can relate to and apply to Buddhism and make Buddhism real in America. Because it's not mystical, -mystical. it's a very practical way of deciding how you want to live. So we're really happy that he started that center. He died in 1980, but his senior student took over. And she lasted until just a couple years ago when she passed away. Now we have another person who's running the center. And I've lived there for almost 25 years now. And it's been a great place to live because it's challenging to live in Koreatown. Why is that? Because it's an urban environment. We have more people living side by side than probably any place else. We have helicopters that cruise all day and all night. We have sirens right down Vermont Avenue because there's a police station and a fire station just two blocks away. All day, all night, you know, sirens, people need help, blah, blah, blah. Then the helicopters come. Then you hear yelling and screaming. We have a large homeless population. And I thought to myself, do I really want to be here with all this noise, with all these distractions? And then I thought to myself, well, you know, Buddhism is about suffering and ending sufferings. This is probably the best place to be, because everybody here is suffering. So we got a lot to talk about, and it seems to be the case. But one day I'm going to find a little lake, you know, with a forest, and just birds and maybe some raccoons, and just sort of kick back and enjoy nature, instead of the urban chaos that I find myself living in today. So... Why did I become a Buddhist? Why did I even go to International Buddhist Meditation Center the first time? 28 years old, okay? I had been a Lutheran. I went to high school. When I went to high school, it was really important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So I became an agnostic. I thought, well, maybe there is something out there, but I don't know what it is. Then at the age of 28, literally one morning I woke up And I said to myself, I'm going to die one day. I'm going to die. And I don't know how to do it. And no one can tell me how to do it. So I said to myself, maybe I need a religion so I can die well. That day I quit smoking after 14 years and never picked up another cigarette. A week later I joined the gym to start exercising. I figured if I have to die, I'm going to live as well as I can before I die and be as healthy as I can. And then something dawned on me. I'm focusing all this stuff on my body, but how about my mind? Because does the body know it's even alive, I said. And I don't think our bodies know they're alive. They just do what our mind tells them to do. You know, we drive a car, our mind says this, I drive a car, we're hungry, mind says, okay, let's find some food. So the... The one part of me that was most afraid to die, which was my mind, I was just, I forgot about it. So I bought this book by Houston Smith called World Religions. And it's a little chapter on most of the major religions. And I read the chapter on Buddhism twice. And I said, I'm going to be a Buddhist because that makes the most sense. And then I got the phone book. Remember the phone book? long time ago, we had Yellow Pages and yeah, I know so I got the phone book, I, Yellow Pages Meditation Center, under M. It was there, International Buddhist Meditation Center. So I went and to learn how to meditate. I figured, okay, if I can get my mind ready to die, I'll be okay. Then I won't be so scared, and I'll know something about the process. So I went that first night. It was raining. It was cold. We sat on the floor. They didn't turn on the heat. I don't know why. And, and we just sort of sat there, and I watched my breath going out and in, out and in, out and in. Forty-five minutes. My knees hurt, my ankles hurt, my back hurt, my mind was agitated. What's wrong with all these people sitting here quietly? Don't they have anything better to do? I can't believe I'm here. And then the gong rings. It's over. Oh, a big sigh of relief. And then the teacher comes out. His name was Shinzen. And he started to give a Dharma talk. And he started to talk about life from a Buddhist perspective. And it blew me away. I had never heard anybody talking the way he did about all these sort of regular things that everybody experiences. But he had this sort of ultimate viewpoint on all these relative, mediocre, non-essential things that happen every day in our life. So I said to myself... One day, I'm going to see the world he does, the way he does. I'm going to figure it out. So for weeks, I would go back. I'd suffer through meditation just so I could hear him speak again about experiencing the world in this rather unique Buddhist way, this transcendent way. Very cool. at one point, he talked about the walls. And he said, you know, these walls are transparent. And I'm looking at the wall, and I'm thinking, I can't see through it doesn't look transparent to me. He says, oh no, the wall doesn't exist the way you think it does. The wall is a concept. That word wall does not mean that thing. I'm going, man, this is so cool. And not even on drugs. (laughs) He's just looking at that thing. So I started to study Buddhism and I started to understand the idea of concepts and how we're deluded into seeing things that don't really exist in the way we think they do. And just life in general. And I started to understand the whole idea about dying. That everything that's born has to die. And the problem with being on earth is that everything was born. Everything started. There was a first cause. If you're a Christian, you might say, well, God, first cause, of course. If you're into science, you might say, well, Big Bang Theory is so cool. Maybe that's how it all started. And a Buddhist says, well, we don't really care how it started. But now that we're here, let's do something about it. You know? So because it started, because there was a first cause, everything on earth has to die. Even the mountains turn to sand, given enough time. Even those those trees that last 500 or 1,000 years, one day they will fall as well. And I'm just looking around going, wow, of course. So I was born. That means... I have to die. And then I said to myself, well, why was I born? And then I figured it out. My parents had sex and I had karma. And those two things came together and I showed up. Complaining all the while that I didn't ask to be born. And yet, somehow, I did. Wow, I'm going, okay. So now that I'm here, I have all these stages to go through. Teenage... 20s, 30s, 50s, 60s, I have all these stages, all these chances to change and evolve and grow and become a different person. And so what I started to learn about Buddhism is that they tell you, you are not going to live any longer as who you are right now, longer than a moment, and then you'll be somebody else. And then you'll be somebody else. So the person that woke up this morning is different from the person sitting here right now. And after you leave this class today, after listening to me speak, you'll be a different person then too. And then you'll have lunch and you'll be a different person. And all day long you're going to be a series of people. You're going to look pretty much the same. People aren't going to really freak out thinking you're completely different. But there will be little subtle differences that somebody might pick up on, you know. Maybe you heard some bad news and you're sort of sad now. Or maybe you heard some good news and you're sort of happy now. And you weren't that way two hours ago. And they can say, what happened? Why are you the way you are now? So Buddhism talks a lot about being who we are now. Okay. Very cool. So Shinzen kept talking. I kept listening. I kept reading. And most important, I kept meditating. Trying to see Who was in my head? Who's there? You know? And what I found was nobody in particular. You know, sometimes there would be a sort of a good person, sometimes not so good person in my head. Sometimes a happy person, sometimes not so happy. Sometimes a greedy and lustful person, sometimes a person with equanimity and balance. Always changing depending on the circumstances I found myself in. And then I said to myself, of course, The Buddha talked about it. Shinzen talked about it. Meditation masters have talked about it. We are conditional as human beings. We do not stand independent from our circumstances. We are dependent on our circumstances for our existence. Now that really blew me away. I had never thought about that. I thought I stood alone. I thought I was somebody. I was going to become somebody. And yet... I was limited by my environment and the people I knew and the education I had and the experiences experiences I had felt. I was limited by those because I could only see the world with those. Have you ever talked to anybody that had an original thought? I haven't. I've met nobody that's had an original thought that wasn't based on some other thoughts that they had heard and maybe forgotten. I'm thinking, one day I'm going to have an original thought. When people have an original thought, like Einstein, we are go crazy. Look at the genius Einstein. We're still talking about him. He had an original thought. How cool is that? But can we, as human beings, as individuals, just a general, relative, everyday kind of guy or gal, can we have original thoughts? Most of us never do. Most of us don't care. What's an original thought? The thoughts in my head are good enough. I have a good life. Everything seems to be okay. I got a nice car. My thoughts are working okay. You know? But then you might come up to what I did. I'm going to have to die. What am I going to do? If you've ever gone to your minister or your priest or your imam or your rabbi, have you ever gone to them and say, can you tell me how to die? Most of them are going to tell you how to live. That's their job. This is how you live. This is what you need to live well. But when you find somebody who says, yes, I can tell you how to die, listen carefully. Because if you can figure out how to die, you can figure out how to have the best life you can have without the fear of it ending. True. Very cool. So next time you're at church, just for the hell of it, Go and ask your clergy, how am I supposed to die? And see what he says. He probably won't say much. So there I was, sitting on the floor, meditating, studying, all this kind of stuff. And then I found out about the four noble truths. Man, okay. You know, they're they're pretty easy. You read them and you go, yeah, okay, I understand. But do you really understand? I didn't. I had to read them a thousand times just to start to understand. So that first truth is really a tough one for us in America, for us with a Western mindset. The first truth is life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And you go, no, it's not. Life's good. You're just a pessimist. Why do you say it's ultimately unsatisfactory? What a terrible thing to think every day that this life is going to be ultimately unsatisfactory. But the Buddha said, yeah, it is. I have come to understand that is the reality of our life. But it's not always unsatisfactory. There are a lot of really good things, you know, dances, Disneyland, vacations. There are a lot of really good things that happen to us all the time. But the problem is they end. They don't last forever. They don't even last long enough sometimes. So you were really happy when things were going that way, and then they ended, and you went, oh, man, unsatisfactory. You know? And then when you're 16, you just feel so alive and enthusiastic, and then you get to be 60, and you go, I don't know. Do I want to leave the house today? You know? Ultimately, unsatisfactory. You make a lot of money. Wow, this is really good. You lose a lot of money. Wow, this is really bad. Highs and lows, highs and lows, good and bad, good and bad. But it always ends up being ultimately unsatisfactory. First noble truth. It takes a long time to really appreciate that, but this is what I've come to understand. That if I think life is going to be ultimately unsatisfactory and something good is happening right now, I'm in. I want it to be there. Completely, totally involved in what's going on right now. Because I know one day it's going to end. Maybe even one hour it's going to end. Maybe even one minute. So I'm there, enjoying it. Yeah, this is so cool. Fantastic. And then it goes away. And you go, yeah, well, I knew it was going to go away. But while I was there, I was with it. I was engaged. Okay. Now, It turns out to be bad, whatever it is. And you go, wow, it's really bad. But then you say to yourself, it's not going to stay that way. Everything always changes. The good always changed. The bad will change too. All I have to do is be here now until it changes. So you're engaged in your life, whether it be good or bad, because of that first noble truth. Okay? Second noble truth. The reason our life is so unsatisfactory ultimately is because we have craving, desire, attachment, and aversion. Man, those things are like the worst. Desire. Have you ever wanted, have you ever desired to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And he or she paid absolutely no attention to you? And your desire got even stronger because they didn't care or even recognized that you were walking on this planet Earth? Have you been there? That just feels terrible. And your whole body and your whole mind is so focused on that attachment and that desire. And it never comes to fruition. It never totally works out. And then you go back to the first noble truth. Well, life is ultimately unsatisfactory. There you go. I knew she or he was the one, but they didn't know. And no matter what I said or did, I couldn't get through to them. And I had to let them go and find somebody else. And then I had to go find somebody else. And thankfully, we live in a city that has like four million people. There are plenty of somebody else's out there. But then you find the right person. It's so wonderful. You can't believe it. You say, let's get married and be together forever. Man, that's a commitment. Forever? Be together forever? Have you ever seen people that have been married for 50 years? They start to look like each other. That's how long they've been together. And they answer each other's questions without even being asked. You just go, wow. And then they have the kids. Well, let's let's replicate, they say. Let's see what we can put together. And then that first little boy or girl shows up. Karma, sex. Oh, the cutest little thing. It's so wonderful. All it does is eat and defecate, but it's okay. Because we love this little guy. You know? And doesn't talk, doesn't really do anything, sleep most of the time. But somehow you can see your features in that little boy or girl and it's an extension of you. And it's just so wonderful. Sometimes I see that in my cats. I see me in those cats sometimes. And they're just so wonderful. Then they get to go to school and start to be socialized. You know, I, I hated school. I never liked school. It was really difficult for me to go to school. I can remember going to kindergarten. This was in Iowa. This was probably 19 oh man, 56, 57 something like that. Long time ago, different world altogether. Brown stone building with these big big glass windows. And my mom, who never left me at all, drove me to this building and said, "Go in there and I'll pick you up." "Where are you going, mom? Can't you come in with me?" "No, son." You gotta go in there alone. Not alone. I don't want to go in alone. At all I had all these young people my age who I didn't meet, didn't look familiar, none of them. And a couple of adults who kept giving me directions and orders. Sit over there. Open that book. Time for a nap. And whoa, I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know I was supposed to be subservient to them, listen carefully. I was, you know, I didn't feel good about it. And my mom kept taking me back. Every day, the whole week, weekend off. Next week, back again. And I kept learning these things, like how to write, how to read, lines on a paper. I'm looking at the paper, I'm seeing lines, and people are finding words in those lines on a paper. And I said, well, how do you find words? They're just lines on paper. And then, when you start to read, you can look at the lines, and a little voice in your head Says the word. freak me out. Something on that page made my mind speak to me. The cat went up the hill. I'm going, this is so weird. But everybody was doing it. So I sort of had to go along and do it too. And then grade school, even more complicated. Got to read books instead of just sentences and paragraphs. I see you having a banned book week in the library. Those are the best books to read, the ones that were banned. They have the most truth. So then I went to high school. And I went from grade school to high school without going to junior high. So in grade school, you're in the same room the whole day. And then when you go to the next grade, all these people in that room go with you to the next room to the next grade. So high school was traumatic because we had to go to different rooms for each class. And we went from a school of maybe two or three hundred to like two thousand. And then they have all these people who are really good at a lot of stuff. There was sports people, tennis people, golf people, political people, and they all had clubs and they all became members. And we like, Wow, man, look at all this stuff. You know? Advanced socialization. And a lot of those people who were in those clubs were still in the same clubs in their 60s. They kept in touch. The athlete, you know, the jocks, they were all applauded when they stood up. Football, track, you know, everybody loves the jocks. Not so much the intelligent people, but that's okay. So then you get into the big world and you go, man, I went from 2,000 people to like 200,000 people. How am I going to find a job? What are my skills? What have I been trained to do? And then you start that self-evaluation thing. you know, well do I need to go to college, university, to get more skills? Do I need to change my skills because there's no market for the skills I have? You know So then you just sort of make your way through life with your partner and your kids and your cars and other da, that. Da, da, da. And then you die. A life well-lived an inevitable death that was going to happen, no matter what you did or who you were. We all end up in the same six-foot box, they say. Bill Gates and me. We're going to be in the same size box. Well, my box may be a little bit bigger. Yeah. <laughs> so, the second noble truth really helped me out. I had all these desires to do this, to be this, and I looked at them and I look, they're just desires, you know? They're not, they're just giving me an intention to create speech and action that will allow me to experience that desire. Okay, third truth. The best truth of all. If you remember one thing, remember the third truth. The end of suffering. There is an end to the suffering. If we had stopped at the second truth, it would be a very pessimistic religion, philosophy, lifestyle. But... It continued, there is an answer, we call that answer nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering, nirvana is the end of karma, nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Now did you see Little Buddha, that, that, that film? Okay. Wasn't that really cool? But that's Tibetan Buddhism, and the other two schools of Buddhism really don't look at it quite that way. The problem with our suffering, ultimately, is that we were born. The idea is to end all future rebirths. The Buddha said, I teach the path to immortality. not How not to die, but how not to be reborn again. So what's being reborn in every lifetime? Anybody have an idea? What's the one thing that's reborn every lifetime? Like our spirit, I guess. spirit. Okay, that's, another, that's one word. How about soul? That might be another word. How about personality? Sometimes? No, maybe not. Each lifetime there's probably a different personality because you have different parents and different environment. But a Buddhist would say, no, the only thing that's reborn is our karmic energy. That's why in Buddhism we call it rebirth and not reincarnation. If you study Hinduism, you'll find the word soul and you'll find the word reincarnation. That means this unchanging, independent soul is being reborn time and time again into different vessels, into different bodies. But Buddhism says, no, there's nothing independent, there's nothing unchanging. It is your karmic energy. So let me explain karma just real quickly. Karma is everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. That's your karma. The results of your karma we call vipaka. That's the consequence. So you have karma, you have vipaka. You have intention, speech, and action, and you have consequence. Think of it this way. This is how I figured it out. There's a boat. boat's got an engine. And there's a wake behind the engine. Okay, Now the boat sinks. The wake continues. That's your karma. And the wake then hooks up with another boat. That's your new life. And now that boat creates its own karma, its own wake, so we're not predestined to live a certain way. The karma gives us a starting point, and then what we do in this present moment changes our future. So some people are like born in Palos Verdes, good karma. Some people are born in South Central, not so good karma. But that's just where you start. And everything you think, say, and do from that day forth will be the new karma that will create the future for you. So some people have like a really good start and have just a terrible ending. Some people have a terrible start and a really good ending. And it's because of the karma they did in between the beginning and the end. So your life is up to you, is what this all comes down to. You're in charge. If you want to have a good day today, create some good karma. Say please and thank you. Help an old lady across the street. Feed a hungry cat. Anything that will change the course of your karma and the course of your day. So that's what karma is. Now, when you achieve nirvana, you actually end your karma. And if you end your karma in nirvana, what does that mean? That means you can't be reborn. That means you'll never suffer again. That means you'll never die again. That means you'll never bury your parents again or all the pets you've had. So not being reborn is a good thing. But now you're going to say, Kusala, that sounds a little nihilistic. Are we working hard not to exist? Is that the whole goal of Buddhism? Not to exist? You know? And I think it's not. I think it works like this. I think what the Buddha did is he discovered how to exist without being born. And if you can exist without being born, you won't have to die. So there's like a whole parallel universe of people who have achieved nirvana, who are living in ultimate bliss and happiness and Peace.